Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to and the Oscar goes to Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Welcome one, welcome all, to the 24th Academy Awards. We made it here. Yay. The Best Picture winner, An American in Paris. (laughs) Yeah. We're back to musicals. Yeah, it maybe should have possibly been something else, but who knows? (laughs) That's what won, and we will talk about it. Yeah. (laughs) So at the beginning of every episode, uh, if you've been with us for this time, you know the drill. We like to give you the updates in Penny's world. The Penny News. Penny is our little cavalier spaniel. She is a tricolor, and she's three. And she's literally nuzzling into me right now. Uh. (laughs) So every week we give the news about Penny. What's going on in Penny's world this week? Well, (laughs) for those of you who don't know, Penny is very, very into her treats, like most dogs are. And she's a pretty smart pup. And so she's figured out like where the treats are and... I think that this is my family's fault because whenever we visit my parents, my dad has a little cup of treats that he keeps. Oh, hello, Penny. Hi, Penny. (laughs) My dad has a little cup of treats that he keeps in his office. And so she knows that if she goes into the office and she sits like a good girl, he'll give her a treat. And so she does this constantly whenever we're there. She like will go in there. She'll be bugging him. Maybe sometimes she'll give a little in order to get his attention if he yeah, doesn't notice her. Yeah, put her paw up. Yeah, she'll put her little paw on his leg to like be like, hello, treat please. So anyway, she's figured out how to do this. Like she knows where they are. And if she sits and she looks cute, she'll get one. So since then, when we've been here, we have her treats in a little jar. And so she'll just like sit there and look up at you when you're in the kitchen, like look at you, look at the treat jar, look back at you, look at the treat jar. And it's like, Penny, but I bring this up because I recently started doing more work upstairs where I have a desk and I brought up a little thing of treats <laughs> because she's so cute and she usually sits with me while I work and stuff. But now every time we go upstairs, she immediately runs to my desk. She sits there and she looks at the treats. She looks at me. She looks at the treats. And I'm like, you can't have a treat. Every single time we go upstairs. That's too many times. But I'm sitting in the spot for the treats. <laughs> and then when I'm working, she'll like just kind of like nuzzle me like every 10 minutes and be like, hello, excuse me. Uh, can I please have a treat? Please? I am ready for my treat now. <laughs> so I don't really know how to break this habit. And part of it is that she's I mean, it started cute. even when we go to uh, my parents up at the lake. Yeah. Oh, man. She knows like the one the first time we went there i happened to put treats in the specific spot on the counter and when she would come back in she would try to get them and now every time we're there she just like comes back in sits at that spot looks at the counter where the treats were that one time (laughs) and she has to have them 
Even if there's nothing there. She just looks there and she looks back at you. Yeah, she expects them to always be where she wants them to be. I just think it's so funny how she communicates. It's like she does her good girl set and then the like looking you dead in the eyes and then like pointing with her nose at where she (sighs) thinks they are. (sighs) That's the noises Penny makes. Yes. That's what Penny's been up to this week. Treat mongering. Yeah. Good job, Penny. So on to the film. I will start us off with a little recap. Alrighty. Jerry Mulligan, an American World War II veteran, decided to stay in Paris after the war to become an artist. He lives in a quaint apartment above a cafe. His friends, Adam, a concert pianist, and Henri, a popular singer, frequently catch up together at the cafe below. One day, Henri tells of his new girlfriend, Lise, before Jerry leaves to take up his daily street corner trying to sell his art. A rich single woman named Milo happens upon Jerry and decides to buy two of his pieces. When he goes to her apartment to collect the money, she invites him to a dinner party, later as a ruse to get him alone with her. There she admits attraction to him and his work and offers to become his sponsor. While out on a date with Milo sometime later, Jerry sees Lise and is instantly taken with her. They dance and the next day he finds her at her perfumery and convinces her to start going out with him even though she is engaged to Henri. Jerry and Lise secretly see each other while also continuing to feign interest in Henri and Milo. When Henri decides to take Lise to America and marry her, Jerry and Lise finally break off their other relationships to be together. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's the plot. Yeah. And there's lots of uh, musical numbers in there. Yes, many, many. I will get into those. Yeah, it was a fun movie. I definitely enjoyed the beginning more than I enjoyed the end. Oh, the main point of making the whole film was to make the end. I know. I didn't really enjoy that huge sequence at the end. And I think part of it is that it's just like, I like the narrative story and I didn't really enjoy the like hard stop it put to everything that was going on. Yeah. I appreciate the artistic expression and the dancing was beautiful, of course. But I liked the fact that it was a musical and the songs like move the story forward. And like, I like all the songs that are in it. Those are the like more popular parts of the movie anyways. Yeah. Yes. Many things to discuss relating to this one. (laughs) Well, why don't you jump into the ceremony? Sure. Yeah. So today we're talking about the 24th Academy Awards Uh and Best Picture winner, An American in Paris. Uh, This ceremony was held on March 20th, 1952 at the Pantages Theater, Mm -hmm. which is where they've been for the last few years. This year was hosted by Danny Kaye, who we haven't really talked about much because his big, big movie, White Christmas, doesn't come out for a couple more years. So like he hasn't really, really been on our radar yet. But at the time, he was very popular. He had a a radio show that was very popular from 45 to 46. He was also in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty in 1947. Uh I didn't even know that there was an early version of that. Yeah, it's a really interesting and like strange adaptation. Okay. It's not very good. (laughs) All right. Well, the ceremony is interesting because there were a lot of movies, specifically two movies that were kind of gunning for most of the awards in American in Paris and um, A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. American in Paris becomes the second film in color to ever win Best Picture after Gone with the Wind. Which is very surprising that it has taken this long. I know. 1939 to 1951. That's crazy. Yeah. And they pushed the color film so hard. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. 
Very strange. Um, American in Paris also becomes technically the third musical to win Best Picture after mm-hmm. the Broadway Melody, and they do consider The Great Ziegfeld to be a musical. Yes. We, I mean, there are many musical numbers in it. Yeah. Yeah. I know that we weren't sure if it was counting as that or not, but it does. Yeah. So this is the third musical to win. Um, American in Paris is the first film since Grand Hotel to win Best Picture without any acting nominations. Interesting. Well, to be honest, the acting is not like incredible no but like i could definitely see a nomination for gene kelly yeah he wins an honorary award this year because of his contributions not just like to the choreography and the direction of this specific film but for his contributions to movie musicals as a whole Mm -hmm. but he never ever wins an academy award for his performance which is wild to me well and very few musical performers ever do yeah yeah but i mean hollywood loves them so <laughs> yeah and i'll have some more like thoughts on that to share in yeah. that section there are several other films that have one best picture without any acting nominations hmm. i thought this was really interesting so i wanted to share what they are Go so of course it. the first couple are wings which we've talked about right. all quiet on the western front okay which is sad because there's a lot of great performances in that grand hotel and american in paris and then going forward, uh, Greatest Show on Earth, mm. Around the World in 80 Days, Gigi, The Last Emperor, which is in 1988. And then the next one is Braveheart in 1996. Oh, wow. Braveheart no didn't have any acting, acting nominations. nominations. Wow, interesting. Not even Mel Gibson. Isn't wow. that crazy? Yeah. Um, and then uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, no acting nominations. I also think that's wild. Mm-hmm. Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, wow. Dev Patel doesn't get a nomination for it. I didn't even realize that either. Hmm. And then Parasite. Oh my gosh. I did not even like yeah. really realize that. No acting nominations. A... Wow. Some really incredible films I know. in that list. <laughs> With like performances that I remember. Yeah. I just think that's wild. And I mean, as we go through those years, we'll probably have more ways to explain it. There's lots of other films that came out maybe that were more acting focused, you Mm -hmm. know, that kind of stuff. But wild. Uh, And I mean, it's funny because American Paris gets no acting nominations. Meanwhile, A Streetcar Named Desire becomes the first film to win three, to win, win three acting nominations. Mm. Um, And there's only one other film in Academy history that has won three acting awards in one year the other film that did this was the film network in 1976 Hmm. for that film they received five nominations total two for best actor and then the other three major categories and they were nominated for best picture didn't win best picture but Hmm. this has only happened twice weird and what's even i mean i keep saying even crazier but the other thing that's really wild about this is that marlon brando is the actor that didn't win of the four acting nominations that Streetcar Named Desire received. Yeah, so weird. Well, and the acting performances up for Oscars this year are some of like the best in yes. one year. Yes. I mean, Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen mm-hmm. is really, really good. It's really also amazing that Katherine Hepburn did not win for The African yeah. Queen because that I think is one of her best performances. Mm-hmm. Of course, she is beaten by Vivian Lee, yeah. who gives an equally amazing performance in Streetcar. Oh, an amazing performance. Additionally, um, Friedrich March is up for Best Actor for yeah. Death of a Salesman this year. <laughs> so crazy. So, I mean, there's just so much going on. It, yeah. It's very tragic. And it's one of those events that, you know, we've talked about some of these in Academy history, but it's one of the events that history looks back on as the wrong choice. Mm. Um, and the most common assumption is that Humphrey Bogart won this award 
because he got snubbed for Casablanca mm-hmm. and that he should have maybe won that year. And this is kind of like, you know, in retrospect, kind of an award. Um, but it's really wild because Marlon Brando's performance specifically in this film affected so much of the acting style going forward, specifically for men. Mm-hmm. Um, I found this this quote about his performance from uh, critic Roger Ebert that I just thought like kind of encapsulated what he brought to the film, the magic that he kind of created. Uh, he wrote, quote, He wears a torn t-shirt that reveals muscles and sweat. He smokes and drinks in a greedy way. He doesn't have good manners that 1951 performances often assumed. As a contrast, look at Bogart's grimy riverboat captain in The African Queen. He's also meant to be rude and crude, but beneath the oil and the sweat, you can glimpse Bogart's own natural elegance. At the same time, there is a feline grace in Brando's movements. He's a man, but not a clod. And in one scene, while he's sweet-talking his wife, Stella, he absentmindedly picks a tiny piece of lint from her sweater. If you can take that moment and hold it in your mind with the famous scene where he assaults Stella's sister, Blanche Dubois, you can see the freedom Brando is giving to Stanley Kowalski and the range. Yeah, it was really, really jarring because we watched this one also because there's so much controversy that it didn't win. Yeah. It was jarring to see him give such a present performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, even compared to Vivian Lee Mm -hmm. in the film, her style is very old Hollywood, which works for the character that she's playing. Right. Going forward, that sort of acting style is going to really fall out of style. Well, and a lot of this is to do with Elia Kazan and the actor's studio. Right. Marlon Brando was an avid student of Stella Adler. And he's credited with being one of the first actors to bring the Stanislavski system of acting and some of the tenets of method acting to the screen. And his performance inspired countless men to come, even men like James Dean and like other prominent actors in the 50s. They see his performance in this film and they're inspired and they say, that's what I want to be. This kind of raw, animal, present kind of an actor Mm -hmm. who also can be very graceful and beautiful and Hollywood-esque, you know? Yeah. And Marlon Brando obviously has a wonderful career ahead of himself. And so we'll talk about him going forward. But this performance was just so remarkable. And it's so tragic that it didn't get the award it deserved. Anyways. Uh, The other thing I wanted to mention is that Death of a Salesman is one of the other big films that comes out this year. It's the first film adaption of the play, and it comes out shortly after the play won its Tony Awards. Um, This script was written by Stanley Roberts, and it ended up winning four Golden Globes and the Volpe Cup at the Venice Film Festival. Uh, And it had five Oscar nominations, but didn't end up winning any of them. Uh, And one thing that I thought was cool was that the music that they used for the Broadway production, they used the same music to score the film. Oh, wow. And they ended up getting a nomination as well. Oh, good for them. Yeah. Unfortunately, Arthur Miller really hated this adaption of the play. Yeah. He claimed that although he had written the play to be very cinematic and kind of like ethereal and like magical and stuff, they managed to quote, chop off almost every climax of the play as though with a lawnmower quote. And he (laughs) thought that they played or that Friedrich March played uh, Willie Loman as a lunatic rather than as a victim, which he didn't appreciate. Uh, I I mean, there's an interpretation for that. I think. I think there is too. And I think maybe, you know, it's hard to let go of your darlings, but. Yeah. One of the things that's tough about this year is American in Paris wins. And I guess the question is, why would this film win over a film like Streetcar Named Desire, which 
had more nominations, was more critically well-received. But An American in Paris was broadly really popular. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, and it's a huge movie musical in a way that hadn't really been done before uh, with such technical styles of dancing and stuff. But I will say, looking at the top 10 of the box office... Streetcar Named Desire and The African Queen both made more money than An American in Paris. Okay, well, there you have that. Um, One of the quotes that I found that was like kind of explaining maybe why this happened was from Joe McGovern for uh, Entertainment Weekly. And he said, quote, An American in Paris's best picture victory was truly a game changer. Prior to the awards in 1952, Gene Kelly had lamented the shunning of his favorite genre, saying, There's a strange sort of reasoning in Hollywood that musicals are less worthy of Academy considerations than the dramas. It's a form of snobbism. And I think that that was something that the Academy was starting to realize was that these films that were fantastical, even like talking about films like The Wizard of Oz that didn't end up winning other films that take you away and allow you to have this really happy, beautiful, joyful experience were worth celebrating as well. Mm -hmm. It also was a film that pushed the boundaries of artistic style, yeah, um, which is one of the most remarkable parts of it, specifically the last sequence that Mm -hmm. was like strange. It's different than the rest of the film and it's different than what audiences had seen on the screen prior to this time. Um, (laughs) Liza Minnelli actually said about this film, quote, my dad pushed MGM hard to include the ballet sequence. The movie pushed the boundaries of the American film musical. It's rightly regarded as the pinnacle of Hollywood's studio era. Mm-hmm. So that's what I have to share about this awards season and leading up to it and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to go through our winners for this year. <laughs> uh, starting with Best Picture goes to An American in Paris for MGM. Best Director goes to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun, which is also another really popular film this year. Best Actor goes to Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen. Best Actress goes to Vivian Lee in A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Supporting Actor goes to Carl Malden in A Streetcar Named Desire. Best Supporting Actress goes to Kim Hunter in A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. Best Story and Screenplay goes to An American in Paris. Best Screenplay goes to A Place in the Sun. Best Story goes to Seven Days to Noon. Best Documentary Feature goes to Contiki. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Benji. Best Live Action Short Subject 1 Reel goes to World of Kids. Best Live Action Short Subject 2 Reel goes to Nature's Half Acre. Best Short Subject Cartoon or Animated Short Subject goes to The Two Mouseketeers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture goes to A Place in the Sun. Best Scoring of a Musical Picture goes to An American in Paris. Best song goes to In the Cool, Cool, Cool of the Evening from Here Comes the Groom. I thought this was weird. None of the songs from An American in Paris were nominated for Yeah, best because song. they were all written like yeah. in the 20s by so, George Gershwin. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Best sound recording goes to The Great Caruso. Best art direction, black and white, goes to A Streetcar Named Desire, which was a really cool set that yeah, they used very, in this very film. Cool. Best art direction in color goes to An American in Paris, mm-hmm. another beautiful set. Uh, Cedric Gibbons. Yes. Specifically, that last sequence. Really cool. Really, really cool. Uh, Best Cinematography, Black and White, goes to A Place in the Sun. Best Cinematography in Color goes to An American in Paris. Best Costume Design, Black and White, goes to A Place in the Sun. Get another win for Edith Head. Gotta talk about her sometime. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Best Costume Design in Color goes to An American in Paris. And Best Film Editing goes to A Place in the Sun. It's really interesting to have this 
ceremony because it doesn't happen that often where two films are kind of neck and neck and that the two films just kind of sweep. Yeah. And of course, now we don't have the ability to nominate films in black and white and color in separate right. categories. Yeah. Which like kind of helped both of these films to mm-hmm. g- get a bunch of more wins. But yeah, it's just interesting that those two films just kind of split all the awards. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting to look at the way it shakes out because A Streetcar Named Desire gets 12 nominations, A Place in the Sun gets nine nominations, and An American in Paris gets eight. And then in the end, An American in Paris and A Place in the Sun both win six, and A Streetcar Named Desire wins four. Wow. So... Just interesting. Uh, as always, there are some other awards. Uh, Best Foreign Language Film goes to Rashomon. Which is a really incredible film we don't have time to talk about today, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but it's just like so important in film history as far as bringing Japanese films to a more like worldwide audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, that also won the Golden Lion. Yes. Mm-hmm. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to Arthur Freed Mm -hmm. this year. And there are two honorary awards given out. One to the film When Worlds Collide, which is a science fiction film uh, for best special effects, uh, kind of as its own honorary category Mm. for some of their innovations for that film. And then finally, an honorary award is given to Gene Kelly for, quote, his versatility as an actor, singer, director, and dancer, and specifically for his brilliant achievements in the art of choreography on film. Well, and this makes sense because only two years prior, they've given one to Fred Astaire for basically the same thing. Exactly. And so I thought it would be worth taking just a second here to talk about his contributions to this film because Gene Kelly has a great career ahead of him still. So we'll have him around for a bit, (laughs) Uh, specifically for one of my very favorite films of all time. Which did not win any Academy Awards. It's devastating. It doesn't matter. Awards mean nothing. I'm talking about Singing in the Rain which is the greatest movie musical of all time. But anyways, (laughs) I thought this was really interesting. Gene Kelly's first major film success came at the age of 30 for him Mm. with the film Cover Girl with Rita Hayworth. Um, And then his last film that he like really contributed to was only 10 years later, uh, The Happy Road. And after that, he made several film appearances, but his whole career was about a decade, which is wild. And he began his film career past the prime of most dancers, Mm -hmm. which was part of like the struggle that he had. Um, He really expanded the genre of musical theater and musical movies. Uh, Unfortunately, he was the prime person there for the rise and kind of the disintegration of the big classic Hollywood movie musical. Yeah. His like biggest contributions were that he was really interested in experimenting with lighting, camera techniques and special effects to achieve true integration of dance with film. Uh, And he was one of the first people to use split screens, double images and live action with animation. And is credited as the person who made the ballet form commercially acceptable to film audiences. Uh (laughs) He also really was inspired by Fred Astaire, but he wanted to expand the world that Fred Astaire had created on screen. And he said, quote, I used to envy his cool aristocratic style, so intimate and contained. Fred wears a top hat and tails to the manor. I put them on and I look like a truck driver. (laughs) (laughs) He was really interested in making dancing masculine. This was one Mm. of his biggest endeavors in his career. Um, He thought that there was this huge stigma around dancing, that it was effeminate, and that really prevented boys from trying it. Mm -hmm. 
And so one of his biggest goals, because he was a very athletic person, he wanted to be uh, a shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates for almost his whole life. (laughs) He loved baseball. And so he wanted to bring athleticism and manliness to dancing. He said, quote, unfortunately, people confuse gracefulness with softness. John Wayne is a graceful man. And so are some of the great ballplayers. But of course, they don't run the risk of being called sissies. Mm -hmm. And he considered himself in the same category as that. Yeah, for sure. His first wife, dancer Betsy Blair, said, quote, a sailor suit or his white socks and loafers or the t-shirts on his muscular torso gave everyone the feeling that he was a regular guy and perhaps they too could express love and joy by dancing in the street or stomping through puddles. He democratized the dance in movies. Hmm. I thought that was a really lovely quote about his career. And of course, the way that he dances is very sensual, but in a manly way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's why it's so romantic to watch his films. I mean, that's why I love... I love singing in the rain so much is because he becomes this joyful man that like you want to know and you want to be and you want the men in your life to be allowed to be. Mm-hmm. He was an extremely hard worker and he really, really cared about his place in the studios and in film. Um, Johnny Green, the head of music at MGM at the time that these films were being made, said, quote, Gene is easygoing as long as you know exactly what you are doing when you're with him. He's a hard task master and he loves hard work. If you want to play on his team, you better work hard too. He isn't cruel, but he is tough. And if Gene believed in something, he didn't care who he was talking to, whether it was Louis B. Mayer or the gatekeeper. He wasn't awed by anybody and he had a good record of getting what he wanted. That makes sense for the films that he made. Yeah, absolutely. And he was known to be aggressive, sometimes vicious, sometimes mean to people that he worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's a little bit of a diva complex there. So like we can't ignore, you know, some of the bad behavior either. Well, And when you are the best at something, it's hard to stay humble. I'm sure. I'm sure. But all that to say that he contributed so much to movies and he's in a lot of my favorite musicals. So Mm -hmm. I thought it was worth just kind of talking about some of his major contributions to the film industry at this time. Yes, he was really good in this film. Uh, And I'll talk more about him in my section. And he's so easy to watch. And like his body is able to do things in a way that makes it comical. It makes it sentimental. It makes it steamy. It's, it's endearing. I mean, it's just lovely. I love watching him work and I love watching other people do his choreography as Mm -hmm. well. You can just tell. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've seen singing in the rain a thousand times in my life and watching this film for the first time, I was like, Oh my gosh, I can see the way that he choreographs these sequences. It mm-hmm. all makes sense to me. I've seen this all before. So. Yeah. Anyways, that's what I have to share this week. Um, so let's take a quick little break here and then you can tell us what you've got. Let's do it. And we're back. Let's get into it. Yeah. So first, uh, some things about the year in film of 1951, starting with famous births. Kirstie Alley, Phil Collins, Kurt Russell, Tony Danza, James Newton Howard, Jeffrey Rush, Angelica Houston, Phyllis Smith, Robin Williams, Carl Lumbly, Michael Keaton, Mark Hamill, Lou Ferrigno, Stephen Root, and Catherine Bigelow. Wow. It's, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I'm always just so surprised that all those people are born the same year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, some big debuts this year in film, Jeff Bridges. Uh, he's a child still. <laughs> That's what happens when you have famous parents who yeah. are in the film industry. Uh, <laughs> Leslie Karen, 
who, of course, is in this film. Mm-hmm. Scatman Crothers, James Dean, Lee Grant, Grace Kelly, Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, Robert Shaw, and Jack Warden. Nice. Um, just a couple of deaths. There are a lot of film deaths, but just a few that like stood out to me. Uh, Charles Goddard, Jack Holt, Fanny Bryce, Paul Stein, and Maria Montez. Hmm. Then this year, just some things happening in the film world. I just wanted to mention uh, Douglas Shearer won the last of his seven wins for sound recording. Oh, wow. Um, so that's the most that any one person has for sound recording. Wow. Kudos to him being around from the very beginning. Yeah. The first uh, talky guy. Yeah. Um, in February... United Artists goes under new management. Um, So just a little bit of background behind United Artists. It was started by Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith because they were wanting to create a company that they could use to basically finance their films outside of the big studios. Mm. Um, And this was started in 1919. They already had the idea that like the studio system was (laughs) not going to be good for them and like... That's why they're like the leaders of the academy, because they know. They know. They rode the distribution train also. Um, A lot of their money that United Artists made came from distributing other people's films. They were the first distributors for Disney, Selznick, and Hal Roach when they all became independent producers. Hmm. All three eventually went to RKO because they all at different times said that United Artists just was sloppy in what they did. They just like couldn't keep up with the needs. Um, They ended up hanging on for several decades, uh, barely making money, and then found it hard to continue to compete. Once then Fairbanks and Griffith had both died, Pickford and Chaplin were sort of at a loss what to do. Um, So they were the only two owners of the company left. Mm. And the company was really deep in bankruptcy, and they weren't sure how to fix it. So they tried to hire the former governor of Indiana, Paul McNutt, and his friend, <laughs> Frank McNamee, near the end of 1950, but both left in only a few months' time, not really knowing what they were supposed to do with the company. Yeah, why would they hire them? I don't really know. Um, <laughs> then in February of 1951, Arthur Krim, Robert Benjamin, and Maddie Fox, who were all lawyers turned producers, approached uh, Pickford and Chaplin with this huge proposal. Um, They would take over United Artists for 10 years. If they turned a profit in the first three years, they would then have the option to acquire half of the company, like financially, at the end of the 10 years and take full, like, managerial control over it after 10 years. Huh, that's a long game. Yes. And in this agreement, they had set up themselves to be bankrolled by Spiros Skouras, who was then the president of Fox, uh, who was going to loan them $3 million to try to help save United Artists. Hmm. So they agreed to this, Pickford and Chaplin, and this marked a huge turning point for United Artists because essentially they then became a studio hmm. um, before they were sort of just a financing company. Gotcha. Um, so now they're a studio, but they're the only studio in Hollywood without a physical studio location. Hmm. Um, they rented space from the Pickford Fairbanks lot at the time. Then in their first year, they brought on John Houston, Sam Spiegel, and their company Horizon Productions to produce The African Queen, which ended up going number six at the box office, got four Oscar nominations, and one win for Humphrey Bogart as Best Actor. 
Um, so a yeah. great start for them. Between 51 and 52, they produced a few other big hits in the films High Noon and Moulin Rouge, allowing them to turn a profit and opening the door for more actors and directors who were newly out of contract from big studios to start to join them mm. so that they could produce and direct their own films. Um, so already they're profitable. And of course, by the end of the 10 years, they will end up taking over. Mm, yeah. Disney uh, releases Alice in Wonderland. They're trying a new things to try to gain back the wonder <laughs> and magic of their first two films, which like <laughs> they've not had success like that since those. Alice in its initial release barely made any money as it was released as a double feature with the short documentary Nature's Half Acre, which won an right. Oscar. And it was also the first uh, Disney feature promoted on television. Oh. Um, they ended up making back most of its money through playing it on television later oh, on. Yeah. yeah, I always think it's so interesting how Disney films were not all profitable, but some of the most popular ones that we know now like made their money in like the 80s and 90s, you know? Yeah, and it only had one run in theaters during disney's lifetime yeah that's it wild. didn't go in theaters again until after he had died mm. um there are more hearings from the house on american activities <laughs> committee of course uh four years later from the first round they didn't believe the film industry w was doing enough to weed out communism um <laughs> so this leads to the lengthening of the blacklist significantly they add over 100 names to it this year is the first year that the most famous stock sound effect ever recorded first <laughs> appears um, in the film <laughs> The Distant Drums, and this is the Wilhelm scream. You know it, right, Kristen? It's I the, don't know what you're referencing. It's the, uh, scream. Huh. And it gets I mean, reused yeah. like in movies very often. Okay, I never would have picked that out. I don't really have a good grasp on the classic sounds, I guess. So basically, it was used in this film, The Distant Drums, and it was being used uh, for a person who was getting attacked by an alligator. So Ooh, it got labeled as like, man gets eaten by alligator <laughs> or something. It ended up being used in so many different like westerns and stuff but it huh. really became popular and recognizable because of star wars uh -huh. um the main part that it was used was a stormtrooper falling when luke oh my gosh i can hear it yeah <gasps> yeah i hear it i hear it i hear it yeah oh my gosh so then that's it, so weird it, and he was the sound person for <laughs> most of the star wars films and mo all the indiana jones and he used it in every single one of the films did the guy who made that scream initially get any of the royalties or is that like he just no. screamed one time and, and it's like, not what? even named after the original guy who did it it's named oh after another guy who who like came later i would be so mad <laughs> um but it then was used of course in every star wars film every indiana jones film um it has been used in lord of the rings it's been used in game of thrones wow. it's been used in almost Every like Why? Disney film and Pixar film. I, mean, I feel like pretty much any action movie in general has it in it. Huh. I am so intrigued by this. Why do you think this specific sound resonates with people? What is what I think was part the guy of it doing is, that like made it so real and guttural? I mean, he was getting eaten by an alligator in the movie when he made the sound. <laughs> um. <laughs> but like he wasn't really. He just went for it. Yeah. And like, that's what everyone's like, perfect. Yeah. He did it. And I think it's also now used like for fun. Like nostalgically. Like, yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah. What a weird factoid. 
In September of 1951, I Love Lucy debuts as the first multicam sitcom, effectively inventing the genre and, of course, changing the future of television through Mm. today. For the record, Lucy Ball is one of the presenters for this Academy Awards ceremony. Yeah, she's uh, getting very popular. She's very, very popular right now. She's another person we'll have to talk about sometime. Also this year, of course, uh, we have the fourth primetime Emmys. This is the first year that they extend to shows produced outside of L.A., And then we have the six Tony Awards with the big winners being the four poster and the King and I. (laughs) Um, Jose Ferrer also wins um, back-to-back Oscar and Tony acting awards. Of Mm. course, for the 23rd Academy Awards, he won for Best Actor. Um, He also wins for Best Directing for a Tony Award, uh, both for The Shrike. Mm. And then Yul Brynner and Gertrude Lawrence win for The King and I. Yes. Yes, yes. So on to An American in Paris. Uh, this film had a budget of $2.7 million and grossed about $8 million. Um, this is a big budget nowadays okay. for the 50s. But it grossed a lot then. It did. Yes, it was successful. So the story of this film kind of starts with uh, producer Arthur Freed, um, who at the top, I will mention, he did expose himself uh, numerous times to children uh, oh my god what so that is a big no no bad thing that he did uh so let that color his many accomplishments <laughs> i'm sorry i'm laughing i just wasn't expecting that to be what you started with i didn't know that but okay. yes all right all right grain of salt you know all right so he began his career in chicago as a pianist until he met Minnie marks who is the mother and manager of the marks brothers and started performing with them in chicago He sang with them and wrote a lot of their songs, actually. Um, Then he made his way to Hollywood and signed on with MGM to work in their music department, writing lyrics for most of Nacio Herb Brown's most famous songs, including the Broadway melody, You Were Meant for Me, Singing in the Rain, Good Morning, and Make Them Laugh. Those are all in Singing in the Rain. Yes. He was able to use them all because he wrote them all. Nice. And of course, many of those were in the Broadway melody. Yeah. I thought that when we watched the Broadway melody. Yeah. like... Singing in the rain. Um, After the success of numerous MGM musicals, Freed turned to producing for them and started with The Wizard of Oz. Uh, His first solo credit as a producer was Babes in Arms. And then he was instrumental in their reign as the leading musical studio uh, during Hollywood's musical Golden Age, as he brought several of the biggest composers, directors, and actors from Broadway to join the ranks of MGM. He guided the careers of Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, Red Skelton, Lena Horne, Vera Ellen, and Sid Charisse, just to name a few of the people he Mm. frequently worked with. And his biggest musical productions he was responsible for were Babes in Arms, Babes on Broadway, For Me and My Gal, Meet Me in St. Louis, Zigfield Follies, Easter Parade, On the Town, Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, and then American in Paris, up to this point. Of course, he will go on to also do Singing in the Rain and many others. Um, In the 40s, Freed purchased the Gershwin catalog from Ira Gershwin uh, a few years after George's death for future use in musicals. Um, He wasn't entirely sure how to use them, but had seen a concert of Gershwin's An American in Paris, which at the time was just a collection of songs of his, including the nearly 20-minute ballet piece titled An American in Paris, Mm. um, and had the idea then that, if nothing else, An American in Paris made for a great film title as well. Um, The deal happened because Freed wanted the title, and as a condition, Ira said all the music in the film had to be Gershwin's. Um, All of the music in the film, even the incidental background music, is Gershwin's. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in the late 40s, after acquiring the catalog, Freed started working with Ira Gershwin on compiling some songs, including the ballet, into a musical film with the same title. In the deal for the music for the film, Ira was also contracted to add lyrics to, quote, certain unpublished George Gershwin music for the picture, mm. just to help them, like, fit the songs into the plot if they needed to. Ah. Um, over the years, huge extended musical numbers was growing in popularity in film um, as audiences grew more accustomed to them, starting with, of course, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody in The Great Ziegfeld in 1936, then with a few songs in Yolanda and the Thief in 1945, in Ziegfeld's Follies in 1946, and in The Red Shoes in 1948. The Thief and Follies were both produced by Freed. Um, and The Red Shoes, coincidentally, the year prior, also had a 17-minute ballet sequence. <laughs> Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly were both naturally in the running for the lead and choreography roles for the film, as they were the two leading male dancers in Hollywood at the time. Um, Fred Astaire on the umpteenth number of retirement. Uh, <laughs> Kelly had the edge, though, as he'd previously danced in Freed's musical film On the Town to great commercial success, as well as his balletic background over Astaire's toe tapping. Right. And all of this was to get the most bang for their buck for the 17-minute balletic climax at the end of the film. Well, if it's going to be a balletic climax, you would have someone who can do ballet. <laughs> yeah. Um, two popular French actors in Hollywood were considered for the part of Henri, um, Maurice Chevalier, who was unavailable, and Yves Montand, whose ties to the Communist Party gave MGM pause nice. until <laughs> Freed discovered Georges Guterry, a hugely popular French actor and singer um, who ended up getting the role. Mm. Um, and An American in Paris would end up being his only American film. And he was pretty good in it. He's very cute. Yeah. Vera Ellen and Sid Charisse, two of Freed's favorites, were battling for the role of Lise until Gene Kelly convinced Freed and Minnelli to test Leslie Caron, a French ballet dancer he'd seen perform in Paris two years prior when mm. she was only 17. Hmm. He convinced them to send him to Paris to shoot a test with her. And then two weeks later, they offered her the role. Um, wow. She was only 19 when she got the role and was very inexperienced when it came to the Hollywood studio system. Hmm. So the first thing she did when she got to L.A. was cut her own hair into a boy cut to model it after the new 50s uh, Parisian model styling. Oh, uh-oh, uh-oh, um, uh-oh. <laughs> and then she just showed up to set, having not told anyone she was doing this, and they could not believe, like, what she had done. Um, no. She later commented that she was grateful she wasn't fired because, quote, they fire girls for less than that, you know. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I mean, they could have wigged her if they wanted to. Yeah, they ended up rearranging their schedule a little bit and waited three weeks <laughs> for her to grow her hair out enough that they could curl it a little bit. Oh my gosh. I did think it was interesting that her hair was cut that way. Yeah. I, it felt a little jarring considering what we've watched so far. Yeah. She's the first woman I've seen with short hair. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, she suffered from extreme anemia and malnutrition because of World War II. Um, and Kelly was forced to slow down production to give her a lot of extra breaks and even extra days off to deal with the intense amount of dancing that he required of her. Hmm. Um, but he was very, like, conscious of it. And, well, that's good. Yeah. Of course, the code played a major role in this film. 
or they tried to anyways. Uh, when the script was presented to the code before shooting, they came back to Louis B. Mayer with one note about the story to make sure there would be, quote, no illicit sex affair between Jerry and his sponsor, Milo. <laughs> so it could not be implied that they were sleeping together, and it was not. Uh, yeah, it felt as frigid as could be. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Code. Um, the Embraceable You sequence, which is the first one in which we're introduced to Leslie Karen's uh, lease character. Uh, during the jazz bit, the onset Code representative kept objecting to one of the moves because of the length of her skirt. Um, she just had very tight, like, fitted underneath the skirt, uh, and she was straddling a chair. And Kelly decided to turn on the charm and gotten this female code representative <laughs> to lessen her restrictions. <laughs> oh, Jean. <laughs> uh, because he was like, I am not going to change my choreography and we're not going to like edit this sequence or change the costume. Amazing. Um, code representatives kept commenting on that bit in the film, even after it was released. Um, they called it, quote, sexually provocative. Uh, because she straddled the chair and Karen responded, quote, what can you do with a chair? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, it just speaks to their perverse eyes, I guess. Yeah, right. Rather than what they're doing. Because, I mean, it's a perfectly innocent right. dance sequence. Yeah. <sighs> Anyways, uh, then, of course, the film was banned from China by the Chinese censorship board because, quote, <laughs> it depicts friendly, amoral Franco-American relations and glorifies France. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently glorifying France was a big no-no in China. Uh, okay, good to know. Yes, and they did not like that the French and American were being... Chummy. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. Um, so this brings us to the An American in Paris ballet sequence. Um, the climax of the film came as a 17-minute ballet sequence that cost over $500,000, just that sequence. Oof. It was shot on 44 sets on MGM's backlot with around 300 costumes. One of the backdrops for the number was over 300 feet wide and 40 feet high. Oh, my gosh. The schedule worked out as such that they filmed this sequence last out of everything. Um, Vincent Minnelli even went to another production, Father's Little Dividend, which was a comedy, and shot that whole thing in a month and a half and then came back to shoot the ballet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and the whole production of Father's Little Dividend was less days than the number that it would take for him to shoot this singular number after he came back. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Kelly and Minnelli, along with Cedric Gibbons, meant the number as a great homage to French art and used artists' work from Renoir, Otrillo, Rousseau, and Van Gogh, as well as others, um, from their works on Paris to inspire the like visuals mm -hmm. of the sequence. Um, and then the last uh, person involved in the film that I will mention is Oscar Levent. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, he played... Uh, the friend, Adam. Um, he had actually been a very close personal friend of Gershwin's, himself a concert pianist, which is why he then <laughs> played a concert pianist. Um, he had huge influence over his character's climactic number in the film, which was Gershwin's Concerto in F, in which he plays various different instrumentalists during the number, as well as the conductor and the <laughs> audience uh, of the performance. 
Um, the original piece is about 30 minutes in length, but he and Ira Gershwin cut it down mostly using the piece's third movement into a four and a half minute sequence for the film. Hmm. And he played all the instruments for the recording of that. Wow. So pretty that was another amazing. St- yeah. It was a really cool sequence. It was a little bit like, why? Yeah. And it, a lot of the whys in the film, I think, just come from everybody just wanted to highlight Gershwin. Yeah. And like the talents of everybody involved in the film. Yeah. It's a little like pat yourself on the back film in a way. Yeah. Critics at the time raved over the An American in Paris ballet sequence, offering that it would do for the next 20 years what A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody mm-hmm. did for Hollywood musicals for the previous 15. Yeah. And whether that turned out to be true is like, I don't know. It did influence a lot of things, but this, in more ways, it sort of marked the end of what those like that era would be. Yes, I would definitely agree with that because going forward, this feels nostalgic. Like yeah. these dream sequences, they are like an homage to things of the past, like films of the past and musicals of the past. And going forward, movie musicals, the musical numbers are meant to progress the story. Yeah, and I would say that A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody and An American in Paris, the numbers, yeah, are the bookends. And you can include the modern dance piece in uh, Singing in the Rain, Singing in the Rain yeah. as well. It's funny because... so It's but, kind of the last one of that era. Yeah, and that sequence feels so, so, so similar to this sequence. And whenever my sisters and I would watch it, they say like, imagine, and then they like go off to the other world <laughs> and then we would skip ahead and then they would like zoom out. They do the whole dance sequence and they zoom back on. They're like, so what do you think? And so that's like what we would always just go back and forth between. And so when we were watching this film, I felt like it was like, all right, so what do you think when it got done? <laughs> <laughs> but when it was finished, that was the end of the film. Yes, which was surprising to me. Um, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times called this number quote, one of the finest ever put upon the screen. So there's that. Yeah. Um, And you mentioned uh, Gene Kelly was very eager to change the view of the Hollywood musical. Um, You gave that quote from him about the Academy. He was just like, so he wanted to put everything he possibly had into this number. And I think it was because he and Minnelli both, because they really wanted an Oscar performance. Like Mm -hmm. they wanted to prove that the American musical was something to be celebrated. For sure. And especially during an era where so many of the films that we're seeing are plays as well. Yes. This is another interesting quote. Um, Reviewing the film in 2011, James Berardinelli uh, wrote this. He said, quote, it falls into the category of a weak Oscar winner. The movie is enjoyable enough to watch, but it represents a poor choice as the standard bearer of the 51 roster. It's a fine, fun film with a lot of great songs and dancing, but there's nothing about this production that causes it to stand out when compared to one of dozens of musicals from the era. Hmm. Um, And then Bosley Crowther, again, of the New York Times, uh, couldn't believe that the Academy had, quote, so many people so insensitive to the excellencies of motion picture art that they would vote for a frivolous musical picture over a powerful and pregnant tragedy. Yeah, (laughs) I got that. I I get that. And I think that that, and I asked this question about this year too. It comes down to what does the Academy Award mean? Because, you know, today, like we're talking about present times, we're not giving the awards to the Avengers films. Like, you know, 
and it's very those are the films that like have so much going into them and the artistry and the craft and blah 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 but they're so popular and it's like mm-hmm. you know that's not the kind of stuff that garners academy interest and yeah. I think that was probably part of the conversation at this point in time too where it's like what do these awards mean and what kind of films are they looking for because it also is super boring if you pick films of the same style every year you know right um one thing that you didn't mention uh that i just wanted to mention is that this is the first year that the academy decides to recognize the producer who won the award as like the winner of the award for Mm. best picture making freed the first person and first like singular person to win as a producer as opposed to giving the award to the studio on behalf of the producer sure yeah um and then i'll just finish this uh book ending it with the way that i started it that he was not a great person um and i will let shirley temple do the talking uh because she was the only um woman who really spoke out about him. Mm. So she wrote this in her autobiography, which came out in the 80s sometime. And this is when she had already signed with MGM. So she had uh, finished with 20th Century Fox, and she was getting a little bit older, and she was trying to move into more serious things that like Elizabeth Taylor had done when she had turned like 12 or 13. Mm. So from Shirley Temple. I have something made just for you, he continued, fumbling in his lap. You'll be my new star. That phrase had last been used when I was three years old in Kid in Hollywood. Obviously, Freed did not believe in preliminaries. With his face gaped in a smile, he stood up abruptly and executed a bizarre flourish of clothing. Having thought of him as a producer rather than an exhibitor, I sat bolt upright. Not 12 years old, I still had little appreciation for masculine versatility, and so dramatic was the leap between schoolgirl speculation and Freed's bedazzling exposure that I reacted with nervous laughter. Disdain or terror he might have expected, but not the insult of humor. Get out, he shouted, unmindful of his disarray, imperiously pointing to the closed door. Go on, get out. She ended up making only one film with MGM and then went back to 20th Century Fox. Oh my. So she was the only uh, woman who outwardly spoke and like told a story like this Mm -hmm. against him um but it leaves to the imagination the countless people that he must have if he could just so easily do this to her um and of course you also think of uh judy garland who he produced almost all of her films with mgm while she was still a teenager so let that color your opinion of him as a person who accomplished things but was not a very good person unfortunately so at the end of every episode uh we like to thank the academy for things relating to this year in film and relating to this uh episode what would you like to thank the academy for this week Kristen? uh yeah i would like to thank the academy for amazing performances that don't win academy awards uh Because, I mean, this year there is a huge amount of talent that is displayed from actresses and actors that don't win. Uh, Catherine Hepburn in The African Queen. Of course, we talked about Marlon Brando, uh, Friedrich March. uh, Arthur Kennedy. Yeah. Thelma Ritter again. um, Lots of people who just did amazing things. And this is something that is an eternal part of award systems, you know? There are always going to be people who don't win that are just as deserving and it's a matter of time and place and what 
other political stuff is going on. And so, you know, we'll have lots of other people that we think should have won awards. And I would like to thank the Academy for those performances and the joy that they can still bring us anyways. Mm -hmm. I would like to thank the Academy for uh, the Chinese censorship board, uh, (laughs) keeping uh, Chinese people from experiencing the horrors of amoral Franco-American relations <laughs> and the idea that France could be glorified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no croissants in China, that's for sure. I guess not. <laughs> um, I would like to thank the Academy for um, Gene Kelly's style of dancing. Uh-huh. I love, 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 love watching him. And, you know, I, I have some feelings about this particular film. I'm not sure that I would have voted for it to win, but... I just, I get so much joy out of watching him. The first, like, every couple of dance sequences in the beginning, I was just, like, laughing for joy and clapping along and, like, really, really enjoying myself and feeling like I was allowed to enjoy myself. And I like it, too, because he is able to dance in such a way that it feels normal. And it feels like maybe I could do that, too. Like, if I'm having a good time, I can express myself that way, too. Mm. I would like to thank the Academy... I may have done this before, but for Cedric Gibbons, uh, an art director who has won many times, of course, and was nominated so many times. I don't know. This film was really amazing sets, really amazing art direction. The fountain in the American in Paris number was Mm -hmm. so, so cool. Yes, very cool. As the centerpiece for that number. Um, and he, of course, you know, did the great Zigfield before this, yes. which had similar, like, huge numbers. Yeah, it was funny. We were like, during the scene where the guy's dancing on the stairs, it yeah. felt like an homage to that, where, like, the huge staircase leads up into the sky and the huge curtains are just being lifted, and there's just women and women and women draped in beautiful costumes decorating the scene. Others that he's been nominated for up to this point, of course, are Wizard of Oz um, that he didn't win for. Uh, and also this year, he also did Quo Vadis, which was the best-selling picture of the year in mm-hmm. 1951. And of course, previous wins he had were for Gaslight, The Yearling, we talked about these, Little Women, and then An American in Paris. Pretty impressive. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, we appreciate you listening. And we will be back next week for the 25th Academy Awards and the best picture winner, the greatest show on earth. We'll find out if it really is. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.